Mark begins his account of Jesus' life with a claim. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As we close this section of Jesus' public ministry, the claim once again resurfaces at the center of the Jewish religion, at the temple. The preceding story ended with, from then on, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. Jesus had endured a day-long escapade of questions. I picture those dramatized courtroom TV shows where the prosecution is forced to rest their case because the defense has handled everything thrown their way. The reality is starting to set in about who's going to win the court case. But before the jury decides, the defense lawyer stands up to close out the case. Because now Jesus determines to question those around the temple. The identity of Jesus, raised by Jesus, privately with his disciples on the road to Caesarea Philippi, is now raised publicly in the temple of Jerusalem. Jesus raises this question by citing Psalm 110. And then asking, David himself calls him Lord. How then can the Messiah be his son? Jesus' question is to provoke thought and reflection. Jesus wanted to challenge the assumptions that had been made about the coming Messiah and the character of that Messiah in an explicit way. Using Psalm 110 is conceptually adequate to explain the Messiah. If you have some time this week, I would encourage you to go read that psalm in full. The idea of a Davidic Messiah was thoroughly current by Jesus' day. The Old Testament was quite clear. The anticipated Messiah would come from the family tree of David. The quotation in verse 36 is from Psalm 110, the most frequently quoted Old Testament text in all of the New Testament. The point, which hinges on a twist in wording, may escape us without further explanation. The argument Jesus presents is technical in nature. And we get a clue of that if we look at two words in the quote. The words are actually the same word, but they're slightly different. The first is Lord, and the second word is Lord. Now, if you open up your Bible or looking on your phone, you may notice that one is more capitalized than the other. The first Lord refers to God with the Hebrew word Yahweh, the name for the one true and living God. The second is to a king or lord, which is the word Adonai, meaning lord. If David referred to the Messiah as his lord, he understood that to be one who would receive the promise that was going to be far greater than himself. So the Messiah is both David's son and David's lord, according to the quote, at the same time. Think about that. What of the picture of what David is saying? He, he's basically calling his son or great-grandson or, or someone down this line his Lord. That wasn't something that was common for the, the day. So the Messiah is not simply David's son. He is David's sovereign. He's got a higher status or place of authority. He is God's son who reigns as king, seated at his heavenly father's right hand. 
David's words will not just will not work if the Messiah is just a human being. He must be more. Psalm 110 is used here as it was later used throughout Christian writings, ultimately not as a description of Jesus' purpose and work, but as a description of his transcendent status, sitting at God's honored and authoritative right. This is where Jesus is trying to take them. He's trying to lead the people to understand who he is and what he has come to do. And this is what they had failed to see. They had missed this critical point. With all of their scholarly study, they had missed this impactful reality about who Jesus is and what he had come to do and what that meant for them. So the Messiah is not simply David's son. He is God's son. Jesus' question to them posed a different way might be, have you considered that your understanding of the promise, Messiah, and purpose of God are far too small? Have you considered that they may be defective? This promised Messiah was one who was supposed to come bring rescue and restoration to make things right. And their view of the Messiah, the one who was going to bring rescue and restoration, to, to bring the renewal that they so desperately desired, may have, in fact, been too small. Jesus continues to describe a picture of reality to people whom he encountered that is utterly unique from what people were expecting. It's as if to say the entire spectrum of human thought when it comes to the understanding of who Jesus, who this Messiah, who this, who this rescuer, what we need rescue from, and his, Jesus' role in the world and in our lives are often misplaced, misguided, and mistaken. No matter if you're talking about that culture then or our culture now, we sometimes settle for a lesser view of rescue. And Jesus challenges us to think more about his rescue and the restoration that he wants to bring in your life and in this world. Jesus challenging his listeners to expand their thinking about him. He's not only David's son, he is God's son. He is human and he is divine. He's not only David's Lord, he's our Lord. What's happening here is a cross-examination of lordship. The recognition of Jesus as Messiah challenged the norms of lordship. Who were the lords of that day? They were the scribes. They were the religious elite. They were the ones who had authority and sway over society and culture. And even the scribes, they, they were like the lawyers of the day. They, they helped people understand and interpret the law. But that brought with it a level of desired approval, as we'll see here in a moment. But we must ask, who are the lords of today? Since the Enlightenment, the lord of today is the individual. The I think before, therefore I am. When the individual is Lord, salvation is found in human autonomy against external authority. This is applied to both social norms and views of the state and even interaction with the world. When we self-determine how we will interact with the world around us, then we have not recognized Jesus as our Lord 
and our God. When we determine how we should interact with the world apart from any authority that is God-given. And Mark begins to describe how this looks in that first century context. He, he shifts the scene with a caution and a contrast by introducing how the crowd was filled with delight to hear Jesus make this point that, that he was Lord and God. But there's also a type of character on display that rejects the lordship of Jesus. The examples given are both a warning and an, an encouragement. Both to warn and to encourage. The caution that Mark lays out is in the example of these scribes. The caution is to beware of the character of the scribes because their character is inconsistent with the character of God. The character of God that they describe throughout the Old Testament and the Bible that is then fully embodied there in Jesus, they themselves do not display. We see that the scribes craved recognition as they walked about in their full-length prayer shawls with showy tassels. They were not interested in seeing the needs and hurts of others. They were interested in others seeing them, to admire them. And as they went about, they demanded acknowledgement of status. They expected people to rise, as was the custom, and honor them with titles fitting their significance and importance. They demanded people pay attention to their rank and position of authority. They expected the places of honor at banquets. They insisted on sitting near the host, a place of status and authority. Hey, look at me. Look at how righteous I am. And Jesus, he provides a warning about this. And he says of these religious leaders, they devour and take advantage of the vulnerable, who in this context are described as the widows. Basically manipulating poor people by saying, when you give, then you will get. The religious hirelings, while experts in the law were also experts in pseudo-piety. They knew how to make it look good while their hearts were far from God. They could say long prayers in public while in private their prayers fell into disuse. Their public prayers were eloquent, but Jesus judged them as empty. Basically saying better are a few fumbling words from a humble heart than a marvelous prayer from a proud heart. In all of their action, the self was the center. They put themselves at the center of their worldview. They even used religious language and tactics to maintain their authority. They were, selfless, they were to selflessly facilitate the promises and purposes of God. Instead, they sought the approval of God people, which is what their character is describing. In our fractured world, Christians with 
our direct access to God must choose the approval of ideological tribe or the way of Jesus. And too often we reduce our desire or lack of desire for approval to the church and broader society. This oversimplification leaves us justifying actions that seem pious and are really empty. Therefore, we must filter our own tribal practices through the character of Jesus. If someone were to act differently than the religious leaders, how might they act? Mark's description of the scene accentuates the poverty and insignificance of the widow that we now see and her gift. Describes our ostentatious and prepossessing and the crowds are rich and extravagant but by contrast this one poor widow contributes two of the smallest coins in circulation in purely financial terms it's basically negligible and unworthy of comparison to the sums of the wealthy donors it's like she's pulling out pocket change lint and all The contrast seems so over the top. Everything about this woman has been described in terms of less, particularly in comparison to the scribes and wealthy crowd. And yet, the contrast between her genuine piety and faith and the pretense of the wealthy is beyond compare. With piercing divine insight, Jesus saw both the gift and the heart, both the act and the motive behind the act. He knew those who gave only because others were watching, and he knew those who would have given if no one was watching. And then he once again turns the value system of the world on its head. For Jesus, the value of a gift is not the amount given, but the cost to the giver. In the temple, others gave what they could spare but the poor widow spared nothing. Others gave from their surplus, but she gave from her need. All she had to live on. She gives a consequence of God's, she gives out of a, as a consequence of God's approval of her. Because God approves of her and who she is, she then gives. The nameless widow concludes Mark's account of Jesus' public ministry. The sacrifice of All she had is the keystone in Mark's arch of faith. The initial call of Jesus to the fishermen beside the sea to to leave all and come and follow him is perfectly fulfilled. And the giving of two simple coins, which symbolize an undivided heart. This widow's selfless act is not showcased primarily for its moral value, exposing the gulf between her humble piety and pretense of the scribes, or to unmask tests and traps of the, the Sanhedrin, although it does that. Rather, as verse 43 reveals, the chief purpose of the widow is a model of the true discovery of the promises and purposes of God available to her. No gift, whether of money, time, or talent, is too insignificant to give if it, if it is given to God. And what is truly given to God, regardless of how small and insignificant 
is transformed into something of great price. What may look like a great gift, conversely, may in reality be little in comparison with that what one could give. It's easy to critique the scribes and from a distance. It's easy to look fondly at the woman from a distance. You know, say, be like the widow, be not like the scribes. And often we can reduce, as I said a moment ago, this just a set of just moral actions that then we will gauge our righteousness in accordance with those actions. However, at the end of Jesus' public ministry, Mark aims to take us beyond distant evaluation. Rather, we are to see ourselves in this story. You and I will always be like the scribes on some level. You and I will never fully be like the widow. We have a default tendency to live for the applause, praise, and affirmation in differing ways for, as we get from people and, and places. Some of us look outside of ourselves while others look within. We live in a world where attention is currency. It is the currency of our day, according to many marketing and branding experts, such as one even just Gary V. When attention is currency, what we give attention to and the way in which we give it is extremely important. Whatever is consumed will then be shared. When our attention is currency, what we give our attention to will deem, be deemed as valuable and thus be shared. What's amazing is the brain science bears this out as well. That when we talk about ourselves, wanting someone to validate our story, our perspective, what we have said, the part of the brain, the, the neurons that fire are the same neurons that fire when we eat comfort food or take a hit of cocaine. One author said this, activation of the system of the brain when discussing the self suggests that self-disclosure and the affirmation of others are inherently physiologically pleasurable. In other words, these things give us a neurological buzz when we talk about self and people say, attaboy, girl." Or give more attention to us. What we must consider then is, do we have the honesty to see within ourselves the very areas of our lives where we have made ourselves Lord rather than God? The widow's giving all she had is a true fulfillment of the call to follow Jesus by losing one's life. What we give our attention to, the way in which we give our attention to the things that we give our attention to will ultimately always describe and determine how we see God, how we see Jesus, and whether we believe Jesus and how he sees us. The final Greek words of the chapter might be paraphrased as this. She laid down her whole life. That is what Jesus will do on Golgotha, the mountain of his death. See, it's through Jesus' death and resurrection that we have been adopted 
into God's 